Welcome, welcome. Episode 63 of the BS of the Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. Tune in wherever you guys are listening to this. Um, thanks for jumping on, listening to us again. We're here uh, for, I, I feel like this is like a record for consecutive weeks in the calendar year of 2014. We uh, we kind of were slacking there a little bit for a little while um, in terms of me slacking, by the way. But we're all back and we got the whole band together for this podcast in terms of the three-man weave. We got Dave King, got Jim Kokenauer, myself, Chris Habis, as always. We're going to hash it out and talk Suns. Obviously, so many things going on in the world of basketball in the in the infancy of August. So we're gonna we're gonna break all that stuff down. Some real hardcore stuff going on. But first and foremost, so we don't step on each other's toes. Dave, how are you doing here tonight? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. We got hit by a major rainstorm out here on the east side of town, and uh, now though it just feels like uh, it subsided a bit. So I'm not sure what the rest of the city is getting hit with. Pretty similar out here for me. What about you, Jim? Are you wet and wild out there? Not so much, but I am just really thrilled to be back with you guys. It seems like it's been like four months since we've talked. The three of us collectively. Um, no, we did, we did a podcast not too long ago, right? I don't know. Maybe it has been a month or so, but you know, four no, months, it, was, it uh, was about a month ago. Yeah, I think I think four months might be a little bit of an over exaggeration, but over exaggerations are not uncommon going on right now. I think I see that wink wink comment there by Jim. Uh-huh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, before we before we uh, you know jump the shark there, and speaking of shark, it's Shark Week, which there was a Jim had put together his going gorilla with some Shark Week stuff, and hopefully there's no sharks flying out of clouds or tornadoes out here with this storm. Um, for my cheesy topical <laughs> reference there, you're welcome, America, Arizona, whatever. Uh, let's start off with PJ Tucker. So we talked a lot about the hypotheticals of what could happen with him. We saw the fine, so we talked about that in recent podcasts. Let's talk about the actual three-game suspension imposed by the league. First, I'll, I'll go Jim and then Dave. First of all, what, what was your opinion on it, the fact that it came out as an NBA laid-out suspension versus the Suns coming out and doing it themselves? Not saying that they didn't work interactively together, but that it was the NBA announcing the suspension. I think with some of the other recent DUI suspensions, those have come down from the league with Jason Kidd, a couple other people, and I believe Tucker kind of maybe got an extra game uh, according to what had been the general suspensions. I think a lot of them had been two games. So uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about that. So I don't think there's anything unusual about that. I do think that it does put the Suns in, you know, somewhat of a difficult situation. You want to get out of the gate strong, and the schedule is going to come out tomorrow so we can see at that point kind of who the Suns' opponents are at that point. But obviously missing Tucker coming out of the, the gate like that. You don't want to drop a couple games and have some negative uh, momentum going there. You want to start off strong, especially in this Western Conference. The It's still funny how fantasy land stuff works, the Monopoly money, everything like that. For a normal person that gets a super extreme DUI, it costs them about $20,000 between paying back the jail costs and the fines and screening and alcohol abuse classes, rehabilitation stuff, uh, insurance, paying for the ignition interlock, the different fees you pay for the DMV, everything like that. So for a regular person, that can be absolutely crippling. For Tucker's three-game suspension, it's going to cost him about $200,000. And with the new contract he signed, it's still basically a drop in the hat. So it's, you know, this is something that can really destroy some people's lives and for P.J. Tucker, it's absolutely not that kind of situation. 
Yeah, you know, um, you know a little bit more about it than I do, Jim. So I'm going to leave that observation. I'm going to say I agree with you um, in terms of, yeah, it can be real, really devastating, and, and for Tucker, it's not going to end up being so devastating. However, I'm going to take a little bit of a different take and talk about it from an NBA team point of view. A year ago, Marquise Morris went into a training camp as the projected starter because Channing Fry was just coming back from injury and was not expected to really even play on the team in the first month, if everybody remembers. He was uh, really iffy on being ready before Christmas, before training camp started. Then Marquise Morris gets that one-game suspension. Channing Fry steps in as the starter unexpectedly. They win that first game, the Suns do, and Morris doesn't start another game the rest of the year. So I wonder if there's any kind of correlation this year. Tucker will be out three games. I would expect probably a Gerald Green would take that uh, small forward spot uh, so he can be in the starting lineup. And if the Suns actually win two out of three or three out of three, depending on who their opening opponents are, it, we may not see Tucker in the starting lineup again. So certainly your your starting lineup position is not guaranteed for you when you're out. Uh, quick take on this, guys. Um, just personal opinion on basketball in general. Um, my opinion is to go with what I'm going to describe versus what you just described there, Dave, which is throw your next best starter out on the court, uh, or next best player, I should say, at his position out on the court to start. Would you go with the Greg Popovich mentality, though, instead of that, and keep your rotation intact by starting somebody in his place? That way you can still bring Gerald Green off when you normally would bring him off. That way the season and the team and everything is all kind of put together the way you want it minutes-wise. You can keep that. I know it's the first three games of the season, so it's a little bit more unique, but maybe throwing in like a PJ or sorry, a TJ Warren as your starter or throwing out somebody else like Marcus Morris to start. That way you can keep your rotation intact. I totally would not do that. I think they've already got Gerald Green, who's going to be squeezed for minutes behind. I'm assuming Eric Bledsoe will be back and Dragic and uh, Isaiah Thomas. And so this is a great way to throw a bone uh, at Green's feet and give him three games to prove himself in a new role because he's not going to have his old role anymore. Yeah, and that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Just like they said there, the Suns already have a log jam in the guard spots if we're assuming that Bledsoe is going to be back. So in this hypothetical situation, they're really is barely even minutes for Thomas, Dragic, and Bledsoe between the two guard spots. you got 96 minutes a game. You divide that by three, that's 32. That's probably pretty close to where those guys should be minutes-wise. So I think already at this point, the natural assumption would be that Gerald Green's probably going to have to take some minutes at the three if he's going to get any considerable minutes in the season. I, I kind of see it that Tucker would be a starter and Marcus Morris and Gerald Green are going to kind of split up those backup minutes between there with Marcus maybe playing a little bit of four and some smaller lineups. So I, I think that, that either Green or Marcus will start, and it would take something, and, and we'll probably have seen that by training camp, not just on the court there, that somebody would have had to take a big step forward to supplant P.J. Tucker from the spot just based on the three-game suspension. I still see him as the starter. He, in a lot of ways, was the beating heart of his team last season, and and I think he's going to do that again. I think he's going to be working even harder than before, if that's possible, for P.J. Tucker to put his best foot forward and show he's moved past this uh, and be a, a role model and a leader for this team. 
it's it's kind of curious because you mentioned a thing about him being the heartbeat of this team, and, and I agree with that from the starting standpoint, but you could almost, you know, correlating it back to Dave with the analogy from last year saying that Markeith was supposed to start, and then he ended up becoming a much better bench player, mainly because Channing was ready before people thought he was going to be ready. I mean, that's obviously a huge caveat, but... I'm curious to see, like, if Gerald Green goes out there and shoots, like, 45% from three and, you know, gets him, like, 15, 18 points a night, somewhere in there in those first three games. Because that bench unit, you know, let's let's talk about that just for a minute, just basically as it's currently constituted right now. Isaiah Thomas, Marcus Morris, um, you have those guys as your primary bench players, Tolliver and, um, you know, P.J. Tucker, Gerald Green. Not the best defensive dynamic there with that group, so... PJ is the the binding glue on offense for them defensively because it's not the greatest off um, starting defensive unit there. And then the bench, he could also be the same thing. So it, it would be really curious to see if the team clicked with Gerald Green, if they would just leave him on the bench, PJ Tucker, that is, despite the big contract, despite what he's proven because of, again, a Markeith Morris type situation. What do you, what do you think about that, Jim? And then passing it on to Dave. I was actually kind of worried when Bledsoe was out and Green stepped into the starting lineup, and I thought he took a big step forward. I thought that really helped his confidence, and he kind of blossomed in the lineup at that point. And I was worried that when he went back to the bench, when Bledsoe returned, that that might negatively impact him. But it didn't. He did fine with his role off the bench after going back there. So I think that Green would be comfortable in either role. Jacob put up some stuff recently that kind of showed Isaiah Thomas may not be quite as bad of a defender as some people are thinking, despite his diminutive stature, that he actually did pretty good in defending lots of different situations. So I I don't know that he'll give up as much defensively. And the way the Suns' guard platoon is set up, you figure he's going to be out there with Dragic or Bledsoe that there's no reason why one of those guys won't be on the court at all times in any competitive type of game. So I don't know that the rotation really needs to change up from what they have going there, uh, unless, like I said, somebody takes a, a big step forward, uh, maybe one of these young guys, and just you know kind of becomes a, a better player than, than they were last season. And real quick before Dave jumps on there, just to throw it out there, last year in the starting role, Gerald Green played a total of 48 games, 34 off the bench. He was 17 points a night, which was four more than his bench role, 3.8 assists a night, or sorry, 3.8 rebounds, and 1.8 assists a night, which reached one up from his reserve role as well. Minus three on the plus minus as a reserve, plus one and a half as a starter. So just numbers out there for Gerald Green. He definitely flourished as a starter in this system. Well, he definitely flourishes as a starter, but what what's the uh, minutes difference? I don't have it in front of me here. Um, per game, there's a minutes? difference of seven minutes per game, yeah. So some of it was minutes, some of it was just he was more productive as a starter because he was expected to do more. Um, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't really, and I know uh, we have a lot of Gerald Green fans as Sun fans, um, but I wouldn't really base a whole lot of major decision-making on, on making sure Gerald Green is happy next year. He's only got one year left on a contract. He did play better than he ever has played before this past year. If he keeps that going, he'll earn his minutes. If he doesn't keep it going, then the Suns need to look at somebody else because uh, he, you know, he's only got the one year left. So, And um, I, just think, I just think the Suns just need to 
experiment. I know I started it off with, I'm going kind of full, full circle here. I started off with saying, let's reward Gerald Green with three stars while P.J. Tucker is out. And I think that's fine, but I wouldn't spend the rest of the season, unless Gerald Green proves his worth, I wouldn't spend the rest of the season finding minutes for him over Isaiah Thomas, Bledsoe, Dragic, and, you know, the, even the Morrises, depending on how they play. I think Marcus Morris is going to spend a lot of time at the four. <clears throat> even though he's small, I think the Suns are going to have to play a little smaller next year and hope their pivot guy, the guy in the middle, can can help protect the rim. So, I mean, a real a real factor, a key factor for this season has got to be Alex Lynn. I know the Suns, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the Suns will sign a veteran center, um, although they already have Shadlick Randolph, so maybe that's their veteran center. Somebody who could take over for Alex Lynn if he's not ready, um, but hopefully someone a little bit better than Shadlick. Nothing personal, Shad, but um, I think uh, the Suns need to have a little bit more beef on the front line as a backup plan, but I think their primary plan is going to be to put the Morris brothers at the four almost the entire game. So you're saying that we're not putting a lot of stock in Alec Brown with the uh, second round pick there. I know he's he's uh, on the verge of signing, if not already signed in Europe. I'm not. I haven't brushed up on my European yeah. I think Coro uh, Coro just said that he's committed to go to some team in Spain now. There you go. As soon as he gets over his surgery. Um, oh, and I did get a tweet uh, from someone who followed Alec Brown. This is his second separated shoulder in the past year, so I'm not sure if it's the same shoulder or not, but. Uh, he's not really made for rough and tumble, fall on the ground and dive for the ball kind of play. He's really there to stand outside and and shoot the threes. Yeah, it just it was kind of comical that as soon as he got drafted, everybody's immediate thought was so obviously that's Channing Fry, the replacement right there. He's going to be a seven footer that can shoot threes. It's like guys look not only is he a rookie, he was drafted or he was drafted for a reason. You know, you don't get a guy like in the fifty area and he's going to end up being a Channing Fry type impact. That's an, an anomaly and a freak thing that happens, but. So, so to change things up here, and it feels like deja vu. Last week I played audio. This week a newspaper guy decided to talk to Sarver. So Sarver didn't get out there and, and make his comments through the radio waves, which are, are much more fun to play with. He got a chance to talk to Paul Coro of the Arizona Republic. And I'm going to go ahead and quote this for you here, guys. It is Robert Sarver saying, Maybe that's just posturing and negotiating, Sarver said of the reports. We haven't heard from the guy in four months, so I couldn't tell you. Now, obviously, we talked about this via email, and we kind of went back and forth on it. My take is that's a guy throwing another guy under the bus and trying to make him look like the bad guy. Obviously, the Suns have talked to Bledsoe's camp, quote-unquote. They've worked with Rich Paul and those guys. I'm sure they've spoke to Eric Bledsoe. The four months thing is comical because they played three NBA regular season games in the past four months. So obviously, there was some kind of communication. Um, but when you hear those kind of comments from Sarver piggybacking off of the radio stuff from last week where, you know, they, he went out there and there was a spin doctor again saying, you know, the sons have offered him a fair deal and they think that they have a great relationship. They love Eric and they think that he'll love Phoenix and be down here soon enough. Um, starting off with Jim and then switching over to Dave again. What are your thoughts on Sarver once again in the media, um, doing the things that make people dislike Robert Sarver for, you know, it just kind of is what it is with that. Well, to kind of defend Sarver's timeline there, I think he was just rounding up to the four months. Eric Bledsoe's exit interview was April 17th. So that, that puts it pretty close to four months if he was on a plane to go spend time with his family and concentrate on getting healthy, like he said at his exit interview when he didn't make any kind of glowing remarks about his time here in Phoenix, anything like that. 
I don't understand what Sarver is attempting to, to gain through this. It seems like he, he's got people that I think are eminently qualified underneath him. I think he's done a good job, actually, in hiring people that are very capable of doing their jobs. And specifically, <clears throat> if Ryan McDonough was brought on as the talent evaluator, and he's the guy that wants to go get these players, then Lon Babby is the one who's doing the logistics. And so this falls within his realm. And why is Sarver on the radio making these comments when that should really be Lon Babby's job, I would think. Sarver already had his first radio interview, and I didn't approve of that. But it seemed like he was trying to clear the air that there had been some negative press about the express lane to ruin and ominous tones and lots of different stuff where it was seeming like some of the mud was getting slung at Phoenix in their direction. And so he went on and cleared the air and kind of set the record straight on that stuff. But there wasn't any kind of rebuttal or any retort or anything from Bledsoe's camp or leaked through the media. And so Sarver took another turn, skipped their turn, and went on the offensive again, and I think he's already winning. The, the 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 majority of people are saying Bledsoe is the one that's acting like a petulant child here, holding his breath, something like that. Dave put in his article, but the the deal's fair. Everybody has agreed through the media that the deal's fair. Bledsoe has no leverage, and, and people overwhelmingly know this. So I, I don't see what the point is to keep trying to rub it in when you're already winning. All right, so um, I, I'll mention a couple of things down this line here. The first thing I want to say is I don't, we don't know for sure, and I haven't conversed with Paul Coro to find out, but we don't know if it wasn't just Paul Coro, Coro seeing Sarver at the arena and asking him the same question that he had already answered uh, Gambo the week before, and Sarver just repeating himself pretty much and not denying the interview because that's what happens a lot. If you guys remember during the season, you'll hear the, you'll hear McDonough or Babby or whoever Hornacek and, and they'll be asked the same question over and over and over again. They'll pretty much give the same answer and you're just hoping for a little bit of variation so you can print your own version of the quote. So we don't really know that Sarver was hunting down we know the first time he was, he called into the radio show, but we don't know that this week he was hunting down Coro to get a new quote. It could just be that they saw each other in the hallway and it just happened. So I'm not necessarily going to believe that, that he is actually trying to go on the offensive a second time. He may have just been answering questions again. However, I will um, uh, talk about the four months part, and, and that, that part was new that Sarver was showing a little bit more frustration with the four months than he was prior of four months of not talking to Bledsoe. But I will also point out that Gerald Green hasn't been seen for four months either, and nobody has noticed. Uh, Goro put it in his article last week that Green hasn't been seen, just like Bledsoe hasn't been seen since the end of the season. No one's putting negative thoughts or anger into Green's lack of uh, communication, but they are with Bledsoe. So I think you know, you could also make the case that Gerald Green is once an extension or something along that line, but no one's doing that because that's not the sexy storyline. The sexy storyline is Eric Bledsoe isn't talking to the Suns. I, of course, I am a little bit frustrated that they're not even talking right now. 
Um, but it could just be a negotiating ploy. It could be, you know, that the Sun's front office minus um, one person is just basically taking the high road and saying, look, we're not going to talk to anybody about this. We're just going to let it play itself out. Uh, we don't know what's going to really happen. We don't know if Bledsoe's going to take the qualifying offer or not, but we don't want to alienate him either. And and we want to be ready when they're ready to negotiate. And Sarver may have been basically saying that. He just said it in a way that not everybody loves to hear. See, there's that side of it. I'm just going to play devil's advocate and go, we got that. And I th- I don't want to knock the journalist that did it, and his name's escaping me in general, but the, the, the guy who put out the article that was basically 100% one-sided, was all Rich Paul feeding quotes and information to... I mean, it just reeked of... Rich Haynes up in Portland. Yeah, I mean, the the article just reeked of, hey, I talked to Rich Paul. Rich Paul gave me some really cool quotes. Obviously, I'm going to write a story about it, and I didn't realize... Maybe he didn't realize, or he did realize, how extremely one-sided it was going to come off as. And then... You, you mentioned that Sun's taking the high road, but wouldn't it also be considered slightly immature that the older, more veteran group, the group that you know could very easily keep this stuff behind the scenes and, and say no comment, are the ones coming out after the initial article comes out and reacting and playing the spin doctor role and basically pretending like you know almost the same situation of two people that are dating that are frustrated with each other and then going to each other's friends and telling each other bad things about each other. It's almost like what this is. Like they're they're not quite broken up, but they're out there talking junk already to each other's friends and trying to get the the waters more clear for them if they end up breaking up. That that's kind of what this feels like. I to play devil's advocate is that not more of an immature thing that the sons are the ones reacting to an article that was agent based, Jim? I mean, do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I don't know what what the Suns are doing is completely peculiar or not. Maybe one of you might have a little bit of knowledge of this, but this just came down the wire that Greg Monroe has told the Pistons that he's going to sign the qualifying offer. And is the Pistons owner out in the media uh, doing radio spots to defend the Pistons' position and making comments to reporters that are published in the paper in Detroit that paint the franchise in a positive light and paint Greg Monroe in a negative light. Uh, it seems like bad negotiating tactics on the, the Suns' behalf. And Actually, Jim, let me, let me if Monroe clear. did take that, then... No, Jim, I mean... Jim, um, I just want to point out that it was just widely rumored last week that the Pistons made everybody aware, one way or another, that they had offered Monroe five years, $60 million, and then upped it recently to back to four years, but more money per year. And Monroe debunked that earlier this week saying, no, that offer was never made. And now he's taking the qualifying offer. So let's, let's not assume Detroit hasn't been flinging mud too in their situation. I just wanted to stop you there because you were painting a picture of the Detroit's been magically perfect and, and the sun's haven't. No, I wasn't painting that picture. I said I didn't know. I completely prefaced my comment, so I wasn't painting that picture. I qualified okay. it. But okay. what I'm saying there is, what the basically what I was trying to say there, I don't agree with the negotiating tactics that Sarver's doing through the press. I don't think that's the way this should be handled. And Eric Bledsoe's threat could be very real. People talk about it, and even myself, I think it'd be insanely idiotic to take that risk when you have generational wealth being offered to you to gamble that, but Monroe appears to be willing to take that qualifying offer to take that gamble and sidestep the generational wealth. 
So maybe there is some weight behind Bledsoe's uh, option to, to do the same type of thing if these things actually do go sour, if they can't make any kind of agreement. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's interesting with Greg Monroe because he's a guy that the Suns have been, you know, rumored to, linked to, yada, yada, and some people love the idea, some people hate the idea, but, I mean, the fact is, you know, an under-25-year-old skilled forward-slash-center like Greg Monroe, they don't they don't grow on trees, even though Detroit seems to have a few of them. Um, but it's all, it's all just about personality. I mean, we talk about the Detroit Pistons owner doesn't go out into the media and talk, but then again, Mark Cuban is signing contracts in the club with, you know, big-time free agents, and um, Tom Para out there in Memphis is talking about having Mike Miller as a player coach, um, but then again, maybe he didn't say those kind of things, as he said on the radio. So, you know, different owner personalities. Like, we know Sarver's going to go out there and talk and he's going to do things. I think we just got kind of used to him not doing that or maybe doing that to a much more dimmed light and a dim spotlight because McDonough and Babby were given the spotlight. Coach Hornacek was given the spotlight. Uh, Goran and Eric and the team were given the spotlight. So anything Robert Sarver did last year was so dim that now during the summer and these, you know, super active uh, months of late July, early August, heading into training camp, everything that's done is, is overemphasized. It's over-highlighted if... You know, a guy steps foot in another town. It's like, oh, is he going to go there in free agency? It's just silly stuff around this time of year. I just, I didn't love the comments as we talked about in the email thread back and forth with each other. I didn't necessarily love the comments. I just think, you know, being quiet, just, you know, negotiations shouldn't be public unless you're Vince McMahon and it's the WWE and it's scripted. There's there's a good reference there. I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted because I just did a quick internet search of um, Pistons owner Greg Monroe and I found an article he gave a three hour interview just two days ago and part of that was all about Greg Monroe and the current negotiations and how he hopes Monroe will take their offer and he can't speak for Monroe, he thinks Monroe has to decide what's fair for himself and they're going to give him time to make that decision sounds almost exactly like what Robert Sarver said so uh, I think I don't know about the mudslinging part as much as you guys, so I, I don't take it as quite as negative as you guys do, or at least as unique that uh, that the Suns are the only ones doing it. Well, I here's my point. Not that it's mudslinging, but that it's just it's unnecessary. And to say that one side is more mature than the other, just to me, just doesn't feel accurate. I think it's both sides could very easily close their mouths and not go on the radio and not talk to reporters and just say no comment and walk away. Happens all the time. But those things, you know, don't happen in today's day and age with social media and sources and things leaking out. So my my whole point on it, just my overall underlying point on Sarver talking, Rich Paul talking, Chris B. Haynes out in Portland's article, um, the stuff out here in Phoenix with the Suns organization is just it's completely unnecessary and nobody needs to be doing any of this stuff, which kind of screams a little bit of childishness. And also that I don't know if Eric Bledsoe is going to be here long term because it's you, you can't do this much mudslinging or this many childish little notions and actions and end up having a great long-term relationship maybe you can maybe this happened all the time back in the day before twitter who knows jim i mean you're you're up up there in age right i mean did this happen all the time back in your day i just know these aren't regular negotiations they anybody that says that they are is deluded or lying that we have greg monroe's similar situation side-by-side, side. and now Bledsoe is running right past him in terms of having a, no agreement anywhere near in sight. So we've seen stuff with the Suns before where there was irreparable damage 
to players like Joe Johnson where they just didn't want to come back to the franchise where they said, please don't sign, you know, please don't match the offer. I don't want to be here anymore. So I don't know if it gets to that point. I don't know about Bledsoe, whether he's the type of person that is forgiving, that doesn't hold resentments, that can be like a duck and just let the water slide off his back. I, I don't I don't know personal knowledge of whether he is angry or to what degree he's angry. So w- without knowing some of that stuff, who knows whether there's still a chance that he comes back, the Suns offer some kind of token raise, he signs the contract to where he doesn't, he can save a little bit of face, both sides win, he shows up and it all goes away. That's always a possibility, but as this goes on further, it looks less and less like a possibility. So the Suns are just out there alienating the dirty South. I mean, Joe Johnson from Arkansas and Eric Bledsoe from Alabama. It's just like they just got some some uh, alienation problem with uh, players from the South there that are young and talented and may or may not deserve big contracts. Um, but speaking of alienation, so, <laughs> so to go to go more national, uh, I was hoping those guys were from the same state, but I figured Arkansas and Alabama, it's the same thing, right? You know, if, if you're from they there. They both start with A, Chris. Exactly, so and, we're, and we're in Arizona. So, I mean, if people in Arkansas and Alabama are offended that I said they're basically the same place, I apologize. You probably think Idaho and Wyoming are the same place, um, like I do as oh, well. Chris. Chris, don't you think Serbia and Slovenia are the same place? I, apparently, according to <laughs> according to my my terrible terrible memory and just just rambling and talking about Goran Dragic, um, did I pronounce it right? I don't know. Um, yes, you did. <laughs> so let me, let me two let, internet points for you. Let me let me rectify that with a mispronunciation. Um, no, so to talk about alienation um, and my amazing segue ability, let's talk about the ultimate alienator. He's out of the NBA officially, you know, with all the court documents and everything. Steve Ballmer, Microsoft CEO, is not Mister Alienator. That's Donald Sterling, but Balmer takes over the Los Angeles Clippers and, you know, we'll see what happens with them going forward. Doc Rivers is in negotiation to stay now. All of a sudden he goes from, I will quit to let's, let's sign for some money because I'm worth money and let's go ahead and get this going. I have leverage. And Chris Paul and, and Blake Griffin and that team that they have down there. What were your initial thoughts? I, this is going back months when Steve Ballmer was taking over, but now this whole saga is over. It's kind of putting a cherry on top of it for you, Dave. I'm sorry, I was totally distracted by uh, watching that, seeing that Veronica Mars cast is getting back together. I do apologize. I need to get off the social media while we're on these things. Can you receive the question? You're terrible. Jim, you know what, Jim? I know Jim is always paying attention to me when I'm talking because there's always a nice little pause before Jim's answers, almost like Ryan McDonough where it's like his brain clicks and goes, and I have the perfect surgical answer for Chris. Jim, go ahead. Hey, at least I'm honest. <laughs> Jim, Jim, what were what are your overall thoughts on the entire Donald Sterling, Balmer, Clippers situation, just kind of closing thoughts on it? Well, it seems like they get rid of one opprobrious reprobate and then they're still hanging on to this other nefarious uh, entity with keeping, you know, they, they get rid of Donald, but they keep Shelly around. And then I think I heard something earlier that they like part of the sale. They had to name her the number one, like super extreme Clipper fan and hang up banners. <laughs> I don't know how it works out for the rest of her life until she dies. That was like worked into part of the agreement on the sale. I, I swear I heard that. And I'm, I'm not surfing the internet like Dave right now. So I could be <laughs> speaking completely sideways, but I'm pretty sure that's part of the deal. And so that just threw me for a whirl. I just, you, you, you get rid of 
you know, you cut off part of the diseased limb and you, you leave the rest on. And I just, I, I, I'd be much happier if that entire family was completely, uh, you know, deracinated from the situation. But that, that's just like any old, uh, any old prosecution where to get the bit, to get the guy you really want, you've got to give immunity to the one you, you know, the one that's just below him and they get off scot-free. That's, that's the Shelly and Donald thing. I mean, that's, yeah, that's I, why she's still where she is. But, but I heard that before. Somebody put that, that's a good analogy, but then I heard somebody say, but yeah, they usually they go into witness protection. They yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like named super gangster of the country to get a parade <laughs> around the mob, you know. So, yeah, but I, I, I see what you're saying. So it, it was necessary evil is, is uh, maybe what you're saying there. Um, yeah. But, I mean, what $2 billion for the, the franchise, I, I think... Angelo bought the Suns for about $45 million in 87, and uh-huh. then Cyber bought them for about $400 million in 2004. And if the Clippers are worth $200, mil- or $200 billion, then you figure the Suns have to be at least worth double what Cyber paid. So I-, I think the Suns would have probably be worth at least $800 million and tacked uh-huh. on double of that sale price, if not more. It seems... These uh, overpaying for sports franchises is all the rave these days. It's uh, people people just want to throw money at these. I guess they're kind of safe investments because as long as the league survives, then it's an impossible to fail type of uh, investment. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you might lose money on a yearly basis for various reasons. You might spend a ton on salaries and lose money, like in New Jersey or. Or whatever it is, you may you may end up losing money on an annual basis, uh, but it's small money, you know. And all you got to do is stick it out and then re- resell the team when you're ready to go, and you come out a billionaire. So I think Robert Sarver has obviously uh, seen that sale price and gotten his eyes a little bit bigger than they used to be, and and is probably pretty excited about the value of the Suns right now. Well, when you consider inflation using one non-scientific exact uh, tool that I just pulled up on the internet, um, every ten million dollars from 1987, the year Jim used, just so we can you know run off of Jim's uh, memory there with when the Suns were sold and bought and sold and bought. Going off of that, ten million dollars back then is worth roughly twenty-one million dollars today. Twenty million nine hundred eighty thousand, um, to be exact. So when you say that eight hundred thousand number, you know that's actually fairly accurate if you're going to consider, you know, the inflation from time over time. If you're going to go ahead and from you know spending forty-five million on it to getting about eight hundred, maybe nine hundred million today, it's just it's insane to me to think. Like if I were to tell you the the bunch I think, of, I think your math. I think your math skills are failing you there, Chris. Because if the ten million became twenty one, that's only a little bit more than double. So that forty five million Colangelo paid would be about a hundred million in today dollars. So you would have made eight hundred percent over the course of the years on the investment. I carried an extra zero. Um anyways, so <laughs> so <laughs> nobody is drinking on this <laughs> podcast. Um so, so this so is the man, this is, call him out, Jimmy. Come on. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I carry the extra zero. Nobody listening would have gotten that, by the way. They would have given me a free pass like they do every time I say Slovenia. Um, we've seen the comment section. <laughs> so, <laughs> or Serbia or Slovenia. Um, but no, go back to it. Like when, when you think about this, this is the, the, this is the overall point of bringing up the Clippers and the sale and all that fun stuff is, is obviously the topical stuff, which is Donald Sterling. But, you know, Robert Sarver, it's been rumored that he's considered selling and that, you know, when he bought the Suns, you know, what was his overall investment with actually keeping them long term? 
when you look at the Clippers, they were a bunch of rascals, you know, five, seven, eight years ago, you know, running around with a bunch of like good players, but not winning. I forget the exact stats, but they've made the playoffs like once before the Chris Paul era in the entire history of the franchise and all the losing seasons. This team wouldn't have sold for for $2 billion just a few short years ago and how times have changed. If you're evaluating the Phoenix Suns just as a fan, offhand, front office infrastructure, the arena, the fan base, just kind of looking at all of the big picture there. You mentioned the number $800,000, but you know, going Dave and then going to Jim, what is your number for the Phoenix Suns for a potential buyer and suitor? Wow, eight hundred thousand dollars is million. A okay, deal. you guys are killing me with the numbers. <laughs> I'm gonna go buy them. Let me go get a personal that, loan. Is that in is that in Serbian currency or Serbian? For for as an FYI, my education is in professional communication and marketing. Anyways, Dave, so your number. Okay. I'm gonna stop saying numbers. Uh, mine would be a little bit higher than Chris's, but I would I would say, um, <laughs> I think we're probably. Between eight hundred million and one billion, I don't think the Suns are comparable at all to an LA uh, market. They just aren't. So, but I still think eight hundred million to a billion is a huge jump. Now, just uh, gosh, help me here. I think it was five hundred and fifty million that was it. It was Jansen, or I forget the guy's name up in Seattle was going to take the Kings up there. It was five hundred and fifty million, and people thought that was a lot of money. Uh, and Golden State just sold for, I believe it was in the fives as well, just two or three years ago. Now, all of a sudden, the Clippers are in the $2 billion range. I don't know what happened. I really, really don't know what happened. It, it didn't used to be this lucrative to sell a team, and all of a sudden, now it is. So uh, I'm a little confused, but uh, if you follow that math, and that buddy math is true and going forward, uh, I think the Suns are probably in the billion range. But if you'd have asked me a year ago, I'd say the Suns were in the six, seven hundred million, but I would have been totally guessing because I really just don't know. It's it's about some to a certain extent status. It's about what people think something's worth. It's about overpaying. You you look at things by goals. What inherent value does it have? What is it useful for? Gold doesn't really have very many uses. The number one use is jewelry. So why is gold worth money? Because people say it's worth money. The same thing with diamonds. Why does somebody pay $200,000 for a Ty Cobb baseball card? Is that baseball card worth $200,000? Can it feed a family, support a family for four years? The baseball card is only worth that because people want to pay that much for it. That's the value they put on it, even though it has no practical value. So that's what we have going on with some of these NBA franchises. Now, what's kind of interesting, if you could look at it in this view, is that Sarver had, I believe, actually stated that he wasn't in this for the long haul necessarily and that he might be more of a placeholder owner and wasn't going to make this a family team that would be inherited and going down the line. And so you wonder about selling high. Obviously, Robert Sarver is a businessman first and foremost. And what does he look at as the future of the team? And is that still a possibility? They have the new deal. The players are yeah. most likely going to opt out of the current deal. <laughs> and there's going to be all this TV money, and it's just going to be an embarrassment of riches. And going into that, I wonder whether Sarver, I'm sure he's thought about it, even if he's not planning on selling the team, is the team going to be worth more 
going into that collective bargaining deal or after the collective bargaining deal? After. I don't see Silver going anywhere. Not only is he as active as he ever has been and excited in the future because he wants to set his own legacy that he didn't inherit from uh, the prior ownership, you know, that he basically lucked into his first championship contending team and now he wants to be around. Not only is he that, but he sees this huge TV contract that's going to double in a couple of years. Suddenly his franchise is going to double even again. If it's worth a billion now, it could be worth $2 billion in four years. Who knows? But if I'm Robert Sarver, I'm not going anywhere. So I pose so this. You heard it, Suns fans. <laughs> if you don't like Robert Sarver, Dave said you're stuck with him. And I think he's only like 52 years old. So if you look at like the Donald Sterling model, that means Sarver could be around for 30 years easy running the <laughs> ship. So, so let, me, let me pose this at you guys. 10-second answer from each of you guys. Selling Robert Sarver selling the team to a great owner or like selling the team with the potential of the Phoenix Suns getting moved to another city, i.e. Seattle, or keeping Robert Sarver for the long haul for the next 20 to 30 years while he's able to still own a team? What, what would be your choose-your-own-adventure answer to that? Oh, come on. Your first option was to have Sarver sell to someone who's better without qualifying where the... <laughs> of course we're going to say that. But the selling to who is better has the caveat that they might get moved to Seattle. So that's why the choose your own adventure has that. Dave Dave is okay with the Phoenix Suns being moved to Seattle, ladies and gentlemen. That is the closing of this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. (laughs) I thought it was three options. No, no, no. I don't think the Suns are... The NBA is never going to abandon the Phoenix market. It's above average market. And it's still growing on the tail end of the recession now. So I I don't see that as an option. Um, I mean, it's... Just like with uh, Donald and Shelly Sterling, to a certain extent, it's the the devil you know versus the devil you don't. So you can always do worse than Sarver. I give him a lot of criticism, but you could definitely do worse. So I guess from what Dave's saying, he's going to stick around for 30 years. It's going to be 2044. The Suns <laughs> hopefully will have won something by then. And by that point, the team should be worth several trillion dollars. <laughs> well, using, using my inflation calculator, I promise not to use any numbers anymore for the rest of the podcast, but it might be worth even less than that if I'm using my inflation calculator. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> hey, we might be lucky enough to sell it for 40 bucks in the future, basically. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by math. Um, so keep taking math, ladies and gentlemen. It's an important course uh, if you're ever going to podcast in the future and talk about numbers like me. So in terms of the selling of the franchise, you guys both kind of feel that we're going to be with Robert Sarver for a little while there. And so another guy that, you know, a notch below Robert Sarver that some of you guys think should be the guy on the radio. Some people, you know, maybe not agree with that a hundred percent there, but so we have Lon Babby and interesting topic of conversation that we had going earlier today with the three of us and amongst others, the conversation of is Lon Babby's, unique skills as a just great agent in the NBA over the years with clients like Tim Duncan, Grant Hill, Ray Allen, Edu Turkoglu, of course, um, some WNBA stars like Tamika Catchings. He's he's had some great clients, the cream of the crop, basically, throughout the NBA through his career. Is that an advantage when negotiating with a guy like Rich Paul, who is a guy that pretty much was just gifted someone like LeBron James and has other agents through LeBron James's influence so starting off with Dave and switching over to Jim, is that, first and foremost, is that an advantage? And then what is that advantage if it is one? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very, very good question because 
<clears throat> if you're talking about Long Valley going against uh, David Falk or uh, Rich Tanner, I think I got his name right, you know, or uh, some of the big name guys who've also been around for a long time, I think definitely Juan Batty knows where he can succeed and where he can't, and so his experience will help him there. But with a young guy like a Rich Paul, who may or may not follow the old norms, right? I mean, anything you've done for 20 years, you want to do it your way, and you know the right way and the wrong way to do it. And the young guys are always trying to be different. Well, it's possible that there's this, you know, difference with Rich Paul and how he handles stuff that Batty's not going to be able to connect with. So that's that's just my, my concern. I think Batty's trying to take the high road. He's trying to be um, his natural Uncle Lon, I think is actually what Jim used to call him back in the day. Um, kind of, you know, hey, I know what's going on here. Let me just be patient and wait this out, which is fine, but you really don't know what Rich Paul's going to do. So I'm not really sure if Juan Babby has total control over this situation like he wishes or maybe should have. So you're kind of suggesting that it's possible that Rich Paul could be this sort of volatile, tempestuous force in this, that maybe Babby's more old school and Paul's more new school. And That's what's a total guess. I could, I could, I could see that type of situation. Obviously, we don't have a lot of inside uh, access to what's going through Rich Paul's mind, and has you know having any exposure. We, we've been around Juan Babby a little bit, and uh, especially you more so than I have, Dave. So we we kind of can get a little bit of a feel or read on him. But my my concern through this is it, it doesn't seem like these guys are negotiating in, in the same room and with the same expectations, with the same, you know, train of thought. They're, they're playing different games because the it's pretty widely agreed that the Suns deal is pretty fair, and Rich Paul seems to be asking for something that nobody thinks is fair. And it, it seems to this point like he's holding firm to that line that for for whatever his... Uh, private, <laughs> private inspiration is for this that that he has he has some kind of other plan going on with this in terms of what he's dealing with in terms of what he's feeding to blood. So, so Batty seems like a, a pretty level-headed person. He's got a lot of experience with this, and I think I trust him in terms of negotiating a good deal and treating this situation with the right kind of care since it's not going well i'm going to go ahead and lay the blame on rich paul in this situation and it's it's unique because my take on earlier i i kind of said this kind of tongue-in-cheek but it's almost dave brought up an interesting point that that i want you to elaborate on right after this dave which is maybe the generational gap is more of the issue there in terms of like the way the new school does it versus the old school maybe more than just the experience because Lon Babby's got experience, Rich Paul has his own experiences, but the generational gap might be a big difference there. But what we kind of, I kind of said tongue in cheek earlier as we were talking to each other before the podcast, which is, you know, I, it would be, you know, fun to see, to be able to have a fly in the wall of the room and just see Lon Babby put his armor on Rich Paul and basically go, Hey, look, I had Tim Duncan, but I also had Hidu Turkaloo and Ray Allen. You got LeBron James and that's great. But you also have Tristan Thompson and Eric Bledsoe. So you may not get the max contract every single year, but go out there and get maximum value 
for your guy. And we're, we may not be giving you maximum value. We're obviously looking out for our interests yeah. as well, but you're also asking to go above and beyond maximum value. I mean, you're, you're asking for money for guys that are slightly more proven or at least have, you know, the ability to carry a team by themselves and have done more things like a Derrick Rose, uh, Kyrie Irving, a John Wall, even though some can argue John Wall and Kyrie Irving, you know, why are they getting paid necessarily more than Eric Blood? So they haven't proven themselves maybe as much as other you know superstars like Derrick Rose, but they've maybe proven a little bit more than Eric Bledsoe has. So that was that's kind of my take on the Lon Babby, Rich Paul debate room being able to kind of go through in the contract negotiations. But Dave, if you don't mind, like with the when it comes to like business in general, if you don't mind kind of elaborating a little bit on the com- the concept of like the generational gap, not necessarily the experience gap that maybe Lon Babby and Rich Paul are going through. Well, there's, uh, there, I don't know if you guys ever read anything on, um, the generational differences between, uh, you know, how they like to, between the generations and how they like to be communicated with and how they like to interact with others. There's definitely a huge gap between the two generations. But in terms of agent experience, as you were speaking, Chris, and after I had said it, I just realized, well, heck, David Falk's from the same generation as Von Babby and Falk just took the qualifying offer strangely, uh, or told Monroe to take the qualifying offer and lay his bets on next summer. So maybe it's not a generational thing. Maybe it's just simply an agent thing. The new agents want to get the most money for their clients, and um, eventually they think they're going to get it, even if they put their clients at risk for a year. Now, Greg Monroe is not an injury uh, risk like Eric Bledsoe is, so he's got a little bit more uh, freedom to make that kind of decision to take $5 million for one year like he is supposedly going to do and play it out until it be an unrestricted free agent next summer. But there's no guarantee there's a bigger offer there. So I don't I, I'm, I, I don't know why Falk is doing that with Monroe. For the same reason, I don't know why uh, Rich Paul might do it with Eric Bledsoe. So maybe it's just a philosophical difference more than a generational difference. I think Juan Babby is expecting a little bit more uh, collegialness about this, collegiality, I guess is the right word, of negotiating in the old terms, you know, hey, let's talk about money, let's negotiate. You start high, I start low, we meet in the middle, we inch closer, and I think, you know, Babby's expecting that to happen at some point, and Rich Paul has just said, "Uh, no, I'm not even negotiating. And so Babby's left to figure out, what does this mean? Does this really mean what he's trying to make it sound like it means, which is I'm not going to negotiate at all unless they give me a max or we're just walking next summer? Or is it just another version of this negotiating ploy that starts with a game of chicken? And Bobby has to figure that out, and apparently the Pistons never figured that out before the Monroe said he's going to take the qualifying offer. So I don't know. I was going to go on the generational thing, but then as I thought about uh, David Falk, I realized that was probably a faulty argument. Yeah, there's a lot of faulty arguments in this. And you, you mentioned with Greg Monroe, a, a guy that's been attached to the Suns through fake rumors, fantasy booking, whatever you want to call it. But when you start like now looking at 2015 with free agency, let's say Eric Bledsoe signs a qualifying offer, you're talking about a headline list. And I'm not talking about guys with restricted free agency or necessarily a lot of player opt-out guys, but the headliners of this list are um, not the LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade carousel that we had this year. You got... DeAndre Jordan and Mark Gasol and Monta Ellis, you know, Brooke Lopez, Rudy Gay, Omar Asik, Rajon Rondo, Greg Monroe, Paul Millsap, 
throw Eric Bledsoe into that hat. He's not necessarily a marquee guy. So when you start talking about leverage, like I'm, I'm curious what that conversation sounds like when Lon Babby is talking to Rich Paul going, hey, look, you're the last free agent on the block. We're giving you market value. We're not really going above it, which, you know, that's that's our right to do that. You know, you can negotiate as higher if you can. But we're basically giving you market value. You go out there next year and your market value is determined by, you know, Rajon Rondo if he signs first or what Paul Millsap gets because he might get the biggest contract of the group. Like there's not a LeBron James out there to really drive up the market. But I don't know if that would be a good or a, a negative thing. I don't know if you guys would uh, – where were you where you guys would go with that? Like, Jim, is that a positive or a negative for someone like Eric Bledsoe to go into a more watered-down free agency pool where he could be the best player, but he's not LeBron James the best player? Well, Dave said the word that resonates with me, and that's freedom. And I think behind the the money, which is generally going to be your first priority, that the freedom, I think, is big to players. And you've seen a movement towards that, and part of the CBA incentivized that, that they the deals are shorter, and some of these players don't want to be riveted to these teams with the the rookies, the way the contracts are structured, that if, if a team is going to pay their first-round draft pick and make them happy and keep them there, the team basically has control of them for seven years, up to seven years at that point. And some of these guys want to be disjoined from these teams. Some of them, not everybody wants to go and get stuck in Milwaukee, even if you get paid. I think these players want to be more liberated and, and have their freedom and have a little bit more choice in terms of where they play. Even if they have to sacrifice, I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to see more and more of. And obviously, Bledsoe will be gambling on his health this year. Uh, I, I think that the Suns offering him the 448, I, I don't think the doctors really have a huge concern over his health. I think that that just as his ability as a player what he's shown production wise they'd have to be gambling a lot on him improving to make him worth that max deal or or anywhere close to that so he's gambling on his health he's gambling on his ability to perform better this year to a certain extent and he's gambling on the free agent class definitely but if Bledsoe plays really well this year and he stays healthy even if he doesn't fetch a max deal he's going to get a very good deal and he's going to get a very good deal on a team that he wants to go to so if he's not really enamored with staying in Phoenix, then that would probably be very attractive for him to be able to pick a location to, to go play with one of his buddies like LeBron, go to a city that he likes, do, do something of that nature. Yeah, but you know what, Jim, uh, let me just, so yeah, you've definitely got that freedom. And if you're looking at it with the, with the narrow lens that we're looking at it right now, because we haven't put a lot of thought into it, it's not really our future that we're thinking about, so it sounds sexy to say, hey, I can pick my team next year. Well, you know what? The teams you want to sign with may not have the money that you're looking for. If you're also money-oriented and, you know, more so than anything else, you're going to look for the money. And so it's really going to be another begging session next summer where, you know, you can call it a market and all that. But there, and Chris listed all the the guys. There's not going to be the... um, one two week waiting session next summer because we all waited for LeBron and Carmelo and then everybody had to go uh, after that. I think next summer you're going to have a lot of, if you listen to that list Chris made, a lot of equal, liber- uh, kind of equal talent. I mean, you could say that Greg Monroe and Amara Sheik 
make about the same kind of money. I mean, Rajon Rondo and Eric Bledsoe should make about the same kind of money. And, and so it's going to be a fight to who gets the first offer and then the second and then the third and all that. And all of a sudden, the money might have dried up again, just like it did this summer. So I think Bledsoe's taking a huge risk, and he's not going to have four offers from all four teams he wants to play for, and he picks the best one. Uh, he may get stuck again, uh, taking something equal to or less than what he's offered this year, and it might be deciding between Milwaukee and Minnesota. My yeah. rejoinder would be that the length of these contracts now are incentivizing teams to keep space under the cap. You have a lot of teams clearing space, and I think that's going to be a trend you're going to see moving forward. And even next year, that's going to be something that's going to be happening, but more so in the future. And the other thing that I would say is that the Suns traded Amari in the sign and trade to the Knicks for uh, a trade exception that they never used, and they traded Steve Nash in the sign and trade to the Lakers for a couple picks. So there's a good chance. The Suns are not going to take a trade exception back, though. No. I don't see the Suns <laughs> doing that at all. I see the Suns only more. letting... Only trade now, but this is a different sign. They're not going to trade away Eric Bledsoe for a trade exception. Plus, they're not really in but that they, position. They're going to have max money themselves next summer. Right. I, I Just saying it's an option. It's something that's obviously 100% for sure happened before, multiple times under Sarver's watch, under his ownership. So it's hard to say never when it already has happened. Sure. Okay, good point. All right, so... The, this is getting really tight and contentious, and um, your treadmill run is over, <laughs> no, guys. I, this, I feel, is like, this is like a negotiating <laughs> session between Rich Paul and Juan Babby now. It's, well, you, guys, Rich Paul. you guys each have no, your own. No, because we're doing more talking. <laughs> well, if this was, we're talking about generational gaps. If this was a negotiation between Lon Babby and, and Rich Paul, then Jim would be, if he's Rich Paul, he's sending in his negotiation tactics via text message or email with the way that that generation likes to communicate. And, and you know, Dave, if you're Lon, then you're trying to just get in a room and talk to the guy face to face. Um, but no, no, this is, <laughs> this is, this is a lot of, a lot of good stuff here, but I'm sure everyone's treadmill run is over. Um, Dave, Jim, are you guys cool to hang out for maybe a little quick 10 to 15 minute extra session? We'll go a couple of extra minutes. Well, let's end the podcast now and then, um, go ahead and let everyone get off the treadmill for a minute and then pick this back up and get maybe some bonus rounds from us here in a minute. Uh, sure. Absolutely. All right, so that's episode 63 of the BS the Suns podcast here on brightsideofthesun.com. Again, brought to you by the letter math. So we're going to go ahead and jump into a second session here. Feel free to click on the link right below. We're going to talk about ESPN Suns rank stuff and continue on with a few other real quick topics that we're able to get into in that first hour there. But thanks for listening. Tune in, the website, wherever you're streaming this from. Share, tell a friend. We appreciate the support. Again, click on the link right below. We're going to go into some uh, extra rounds here.